Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Subi Rautio, one of the hosts of the channel. And on the podcast today, we have Rebecca Carl, who is professor of history at New York University, to talk about her new book, China's Revolutions in the Modern World, A Brief Interpretive History, which was published in 2020 by Verso Books. China's emergence as a 21st century global, economic, cultural, and political power is often presented as a story of what Chinese leader Xi Jinping calls the nation's great rejuvenation. In this story, the nation is narrated as the return of China to its rightful place at the center of the world. In China's revolutions in the modern world, historian Rebecca E. Carl argues that China's contemporary emergence is best seen not as a return, but rather as the product of revolutionary and counter-revolutionary activity and imaginings. From the Taipings in the mid-19th century through nationalist, anti-imperialist, cultural, and socialist revolutions to today's capitalist-inflected communist state, modern China has been made in intellectual dissonance and class struggle, in mass democratic movements and global war, in socialism and anti-socialism, in repression and conflict, by multiple generations of Chinese people mobilized to seize history and make the future in their own name. Through China's successive revolutions, the contours of our contemporary world have taken shape. And China's revolutions in the modern world shows how. Rebecca Carl's book is an excellent companion for university talk courses, but also for anyone interested in gaining a deeper understanding of how revolutions have made China and shaped the world. Rebecca. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to begin by asking you about your background and how you grew to be interested in Chinese history, but also more specifically, what drove you to write a book about China's revolutions? Well, thanks for the question. It's I, I could give a very long answer, but I won't. Um, I, I started out actually in Russian studies as a as an undergrad, so I was a. I've always been interested in um, literature, the relationship of literature to politics, uh, and the relationship of literature to revolutionary movements, whether they are nationalist, Marxist, or whatever. Um, I moved over from Russian studies into China for various uh, uh, accidental reasons that I needn't narrate here uh, and uh, ended up in uh, studying uh, 10 years later, studying at Duke University, where I studied with the probably one of the premier analysts of China's revolution, Marxism theory and so on and that Arif Dierlich. And studying with Professor Dierlich uh, made me realize that 
revolutions have always been understood as somehow aberrant sort of interruptions to history, whereas I wanted to, uh, I have consistently wanted to see revolutions as history itself, rather than as merely interruptions or chronological events that happen and then go away. It seems to me that's uh, short-sighted. So uh, after writing a large number of books about various revolutionary moments in China, whether it's the nationalist revolutionary moment of the early 20th century, the Sun Yat-sen moment uh, of the 1911 revolution. Then I wrote a book about Mao Zedong. I've written books on the 1890, I've edited books on the 1898 uh, reform movement, which some people have seen as revolutionary. Um, and then I've edited a book about an anarcho-feminist and anarchist feminist, Ling Jun, and her version of uh, a, a feminist revolution or a revolution for women or of women. Um, so I thought it was about time, uh, and then Verso editors gave me a push. I thought it was about time to write a book just exclusively about revolution. So that's what this book is. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. And um, and the the reason that Verso pushed you to to write a book specifically on China's revolutions was um, the 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 importance of the year that they that they co contacted you. Is that correct? Yeah, they contacted me in November of uh, 2018, October, November of 2018, and their intention was initially to publish this book as a centenary of um, 1919, which is not only a very important revolutionary moment in China with the May 4th movement, but, uh, but also, of course, a very important uh, revolutionary and counter-revolutionary moment in the uh, global uh, uh, space in, uh, with the end of the, of the Great War, the signing of the Versailles Treaty, and so on. So they wanted me to write a book that would mark this centenary and that would essentially be a book uh, looking at a century of revolution. I ended up uh, going, uh, starting the book uh, in the mid-19th century instead because I wanted to take a running start at 1919. I didn't want to stop start cold in 1919. And then Verso, for various reasons, wasn't able to get the book out in, 19, in 2019. So the whole symmetry of centenaries sort of was broken, but it's still there in spirit. Uh, yeah, it's definitely there in spirit. And um, perhaps we could, my, one of my first questions that I, that I wanted to ask you was about um, this first chapter that, that you present in your, in your book, China's Revolutions in the Modern World. So you divide your book into seven chapters, each presenting and describing a revolutionary moment followed by an interlude to move from one revolutionary moment to the next. And it's really beautifully articulated and you're able to provide so much detail um, in, in very kind of concise chapters. And, and through each of these chapters, you delve into um, how each of these revolutions has been very much Chinese, but also global. And the first chapter starts with the Taiping Rebellion in the mid 19th century. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us why you start with the Taiping revolution, uh, revolution as a modern revolution? What was it about the Taiping Rebellion that places it as a problem of modern history of China, but also, as you very eloquently describe, very much of and in the world? 
Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. The Taipings um, are um, often understood either by the Communist Party narrative uh, conventions in China as being the primitive progenitors of the communist revolution because they were peasant led or peasant fueled that I contest. I don't think that you can draw a straight line from the Taipings to the Chinese communist revolution in the 20th century. I'll talk about that in just a moment. The other version of the Taipings is that they were an atavistic pre-modern remnant of a um, superstitious and, uh, unmodern past that needed to be transcended in order for China to enter the modern world. And I also don't agree with that. Um, so those are the two uh, uh, the conventions that I'm that the, uh, that the chapter is arguing against. And what I do in the chapter is flesh out one of my major um, uh, contentions that I write about in the introduction. And that contention is that modern the modern uh, period, whether it's a chronology or a, uh, to use the Raymond Williams terms, a, a structure of feeling, is, um, is about the necessity because of a global encounter, because of the necessity for a global encounter, not the choice, not the contingency, but the necessity for a global encounter it's about how uh, people are forced to reread their past in fashioning a new present and imagining a new future. And so it's about a form of temporality uh, and it's a form of an activity as well. And so the typings, it seems to me, was one of the first modern moments of large scale mobilization and revolution that required a rethinking of the Chinese past in conjunction with texts that were not native to China, but that were nativized in some way. Um, And that uh, was uh, also a response to the dislocations of the um, opium wars and the uh, ways in which China had been forced into a relationship with the uh, Euro and soon to be Euro American capitalist world. Right, and um, just now I, I picked up on your 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 um, remark on how the kind of the notion of temporality, and of course, as a historian, this is probably very um, central to to your to your work and your your analysis. Um, and myself, I'm not a historian; I'm an anthropologist of China, um, and I really, I loved how well you were able to weave these several narratives of um, of historical narratives together. These different notions of um, kind of the ideologies that that um, political groups or or um, different different actors have. have have been able to specifically reread the present in, in order to reread the past and the future. Um, and through these kind of narratives, you really dive into the complexity of the historical questions being raised um, by thereby um, construing notions of modernity, Chineseness, and China's modern revolutionary histories. This becomes more apparent as the book moves closer to describe the transition from a dynastic empire to the nation state, marked by the fall of the Qing dynasty in 1912. 
You describe the Republican Revolution, which successfully ousted the fall of the Qing, as one of the many global nationalist revolutions of the first decade of the 20th century that elaborated an anti-imperialist and anti-colonial motivation of social upheaval. Do you mind telling us a bit more about this moment of history, touching upon um, the different historical versions of these events? Yeah. Um, well, I'm in the book. I move from the. T- I mean, another. You know, one of the things that I want to do in this in the book, and that leads me from the Taipings then into the um, the the nationalist revolution of 1911, is to make clear that China uh, that these revolutions are Chinese, but they're not merely Chinese. They are obviously also global, and they participate in a global. Uh, uh, setting and uh, they contribute to the elaboration of a new form of global history and a new possibility for global history, which isn't just disarticulated monads of peoples existing side by side, but peoples in necessary relations to one another. And so for me, the, that necessary relation is the relationship that uh, capitalism imposes and capitalist production and accumulation and value imposes upon um, upon different peoples in different temporalities and different tempos and for different reasons, uh, but all of which is enforced through colonialism and imperialism. And so by the time you move from the Taipings into the uh, nationalist revolution of the early 20th century, one becomes aware um, how aware the Chinese at that time or Chinese intellectuals, certainly not peasants, I'm not talking about um, people who don't read and write and who have no access to, um, to, 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 to texts and so on. I'm talking about an elite class of uh, intellectuals or of, uh, of educated people, how aware they are of the world around them and that China is not the unique object of British and American and 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 uh, uh, Japanese incursion, but is one of many. And that problem of China being one of many makes it clear to Chinese analysts of the time that the solutions to China's problems will have to be not only Chinese, but they will also have to be global because there is no solving the problem of imperialism and colonialism, one country at a time. These are global. Uh, pr- these are global issues. So that um, chapter is uh, in the service of, uh, of of trying to argue that what happened in the Taiping moment. Uh, in a certain kind of way, the encounter, the global encounter. Uh, which is um, almost accidental in textual terms, uh, by the end of the 19th and early 20th century, the textual, cultural, uh, ideological, and of course, of course, political economic encounters are far more intentionally understood. And this flies in the face of several kinds of historical conventions surrounding the idea of the nationalist revolution, uh, some of which uh, argue that it is uh, that it was uh, that it's a bourgeois revolution. uh, And that's, again, the party. The party line is that the Chinese the um, nationalist revolution of 1911 
was uh, the bourgeois revolution to which the socialist revolution then was its historicist successor. Uh, I don't think that's true. I don't think there is any reason to argue that the nationalist revolution was bourgeois at all. I don't think that one needs to adhere to this historicist timeline in order to understand its um, its importance. Uh, and then other kinds of um, uh, uh, interpretations recently of the nationalist revolution that it was unnecessary because the Qing dynasty was already reforming itself. And so on that, I think, is uh, equally nonsense. And I think that's not about um, uh, making those kinds of deciding us historians deciding whether the, the revolution was necessary or not. It's about analyzing what happened and what happened was a revolutionary moment. So I, I so that's a very long description of a problem that I think we need to understand that the the arrival of global capitalism and the elaboration of a global capitalist system that incorporated China as an absolutely necessary aspect of capitalist global relations. So it's not just a an, an accidental or a sideline aspect. China was an absolutely necessary aspect of the elaboration of a global capitalist system. Um, that comes to a certain kind of um, uh, climax in the nationalist uh, revolutionary moment. That, however, does not deal with that problem quite uh, sufficiently or adequately. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, it, that definitely comes, reads through through the chapter itself. Um, moving on to the next chapter, the May 4th movement of 1919. Just now you mentioned um, this kind of realization specifically um, during the, the Republican Revolution of um, the, the self-realization of China being one of many. And um, reading reading the, the chapter that, that follows um, on that follows the Republican Revolution, so Chapter 3 on the May 4th movement, um, you write about intellectuals turning to a critique of culture, um, and this being a moment of history, a time of history where the intellectual scene was extremely modeled. And um, was this a continuation of this uh, realization, this self-reflection of, of China being one of many? Or what does the May 4th movement of 1919 represent as a political movement in Chinese history following the Republican Revolution? Yeah, thanks. That's uh, your your use of the term uh, continuation reminds me that one of the main major points I want to make about these revolutionary moments is not that uh, because this is a big uh, debate in the China field itself is whether revolutions are ruptural or continuations of moments before. In other words, do they represent an absolute break with the past or are they just continuations of the past? And I think that's a red herring sort of, not your question is a red herring. I just, I, it, it reminds me that that the, the, the question of rupture versus continuation is really, um, is really a red herring. And so what I tried to do in the book is to write about revolutions as ever deepening the questions that were raised prior to each individual moment. And so that each moment then is a deepening of questions and a rerouting of certain questions into new paths and into new kinds of questions that have emerged. So the 
the the May 4th movement certainly can be seen as a deepening of the the nationalist revolution and the um, concerns that were raised through the nationalist revolution when uh, in 1911 it was uh, posited that the seizure of state power from the Qing dynasty from the dynastic uh, officials and the ousting of the, of, uh, and the the end of dynastic rule altogether would be sufficient for uh, China to, re- to 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 strengthen and uh, stand up on its own two feet, as it were, to use a Maoist term that was not used in in 1911. But um, the uh, it became very clear very quickly that the uh, that the uh, that wasn't going to be that wasn't true. And that the seizure of state power uh, had resulted not in the strengthening of the state, nor in the strengthening of state and society relations, nor of anything that had been hoped for during the Nationalist Revolution, but rather that there had been a complete fragmentation and collapse. And so the May 4th movement uh, takes up that question, but in a new mode, in the mode of a cultural uh, questioning of um, the bases of Chinese um, power and the bases of uh, uh, the power of Chinese social life and the uh, grip of certain kinds of hierarchies and certain kinds of uh, cultural norms understood to be everyday norms, norms of everyday life. Here, culture was, uh, was, was brought down to its absolutely everyday level of routine uh, family life, uh, gendered uh, relations, and so on and so forth. And so it wasn't, the culture wasn't understood to be exclusively some highfalutin thing that was only um, uh, accessible to a very small number of people. Culture was understood to be an everyday uh, problem uh, of uh, life itself. And so when you move the question of relationships of uh, from down from the state level all the way down into, for example, Mao calling uh, arranged marriages the, a daily rape of women, um, when you move it all the way down that way into the you know the molecular the sort of uh, the the the, the smaller levels of society of social relations you've deepened and moved the discussion into a new um into a new path and so that's i think the may 4th movement is important not because it invented for the very first time all of the questions it asked it didn't but that it proposed these questions and dealt with these questions in at, at a new level of molecular everyday life that it had not done so, that had not been true before. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating time of history. And um, moving on to the, to the revolution that followed, um, I'm quoting directly from your, from your book, you write, unlike the social ordering, Sorry, unlike the social disordering since the mid 19th century typings, the, the anti Japan War for the first time socially and politically inscribed a highly contested ideological sense of China as a national state that could mobilize a popular defense against a foreign enemy. 
So here I'm referring to um, chapter chapter four, which which he titled "Competing Revolutions in the Nanjing Decade from 1927 to 1937." So just now you were we were we were discussing more of this critique of culture and this kind of self realization of of life on the everyday level, um, but in the following revolution, um, you specifically during the Nanjing Decade you specifically point out of this. Um, this politically inscribed, highly contested ideological sense of China as a national state. Um, could you tell us a bit more about this moment of history during the Nanjing decade? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Nanjing decade points to the moment at which uh, that has that follows the formation of the t- what w- soon become the two major political parties uh, in China, the Communist Party and the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, which is the Nationalists, and the CCP, which is the Communists. And they had had this very short-lived, intense sort of uh, unification of, uh, polit- of at the party level, at the organizational level, in order to reunify China after the fragmentation that had happened uh, 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 after the um, the 1911 revolution, so uh, the Nanjing decade then follows the uh, moment at which the um, is the decade that follows the split between the communists and the nationalists. The nationalists turn around and uh, decide that they no longer want to be in a unified unified structure with the communists. The ideological tensions between the two um, parties, uh, one committed to a certain version of socialism, one committed to a very uh, uh, commandeered sort of state-centric capitalism, uh, uh, that these two ideological modes could no longer be made to coexist in one organizational structure. And so the, 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 the Kuomintang, the nationalists, turn around and expel the communists from, uh, from the unification. They uh, then spend the next decade uh, trying to expel the, uh, I, I mean, expunge, annihilate, really, they're called campaigns of annihilation to annihilate the Communist Party uh, root and branch, in other words, to really quite you know, massacre to destroy the Communist Party, not only as an ideology, but as a physical presence in any way, shape or form. And that's, you know, the, the, it's a very extended decade of revolutionary uh, and counter-revolutionary movements. The problem of Chineseness, when uh, becomes one of the most important questions, because when you say China in 1927 all the way through, uh, you know, for, for, for many years later, uh, it's not clear what kind of China, what China you're talking about, what you're speaking of, whether you're talking about a China that is primarily organized for capital accumulation and cooperation in the global capitalist world, or whether it's going to be a China that is going to be more, uh, uh, more, more allied with, or at least more in tune with the uh, by then uh, sort of consolidated Soviet revolution, Russian revolution, the Soviet uh, Union that has come out of uh, the uh, come out of the Lenin's death and so on, with Stalin having having consolidated power and his. Um, 
his his uh, fight with Trotsky over the uh, the the direction of Russia of Soviet Union, and so you have then the beginning of um, well the continuation to use a word I don't love, but to, to the, the deepening, to use a word that I do like, <laughs> the, <laughs> the deepening of, a, of the question of what constitutes, what is China? If we can yeah. understand that that question was raised in the Taipings and by the Taipings to understand, to, to think about in the Taiping era, whether China was part of the Christian world was part of, um, because the Taipings revolved around some idea that its leader, Hong Shotran, was the son of, um, the younger son of God, the the, uh, the uh, younger brother of Jesus. And so that's a, you know, sort of a, a rereading of China into a Christian, uh, like a very attenuated, obviously Christian mode. The, the the missionaries in China at the time were absolutely horrified at this at this uh, elaboration of Christianity, obviously. But if we understand that that's a moment at which China, the idea that China as a problem uh, becomes real, really, really thought. Then by the 1911 revolution, let's say, China gets rethought in the mode of a colonized, imperialized country that needs to assert its national independence. Then, And then May 4th, when China gets understood to be a cultural problem, by the 1920s, late 1920s and, 19, and early 1930s, the problem of China's political and economic form become absolutely key and central. And that becomes, uh, and that's not divorced from the cultural, ethnic, uh, and gender problems that have already been raised, but it becomes a real, um, uh, it, 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 it is the stuff of the revolutionary and counter-revolutionary ideological uh, uh, competition of that period. Yeah, that's um, that kind of leads to my to my question fo- following um, the chapter on um, the Nanjing decade. In chapter five, we get to the nineteen four sorry the nineteen forty nine revolution. So this marks the birth of People's Republic of China, the newly convened People's Con- Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. Founded on socialism, this is another momentary example of revolution in Chinese modern history that was never purely a nationalist endeavor. At least this is what I interpreted from from your um, book itself. And again, you convincingly convincingly describe how whilst the revolution was profoundly local, it was fundamentally global. And just now you you um, you brought that significance through through this kind of what was happening in the Soviet Union at the time. But perhaps you could describe uh, the relevance of this, um, of the revolution and where to, to kind of point out where China stood on the global platform at the time, both in terms of kind of how China or political leaders at the time self-reflected where they were in the world. What, what of the many um, Chinas had they become and also the reality of, of where China stood globally? Yeah, well, I mean, as we know, the uh, the competing the Nanjing decade, the competing revolutions that I talk about between uh, the communists and the nationalists at that time result in the communists reconstituting their movement up in the northwest, um, 
and um, the uh, nationalists uh, uh, inscribing themselves in the uh, central part of China from Nanjing uh, south. And then when the invasion, the Japanese invade, uh, China uh, becomes part of a, um, a global war against fascism. It takes the rest of the world a very long time, four long years, uh, to actually recognize that the Sino-Japanese War of, that began in 1937 and, and only ends with the end of World War II in 1945, but that the Sino-Japanese War is essentially part of a global war against fascism rather than merely a regional war of, of, two, of, of the Japanese trying to assert uh, their particularistic power over China. Of course, it's a regional thing, but it is also part of the global uh, anti-fascist movement. And the, uh, the, the communists come out of that war uh, not only with a very strengthened sort of ground game, as you could put it, um, you know, they're very, very uh, strong on the ground because they were operating as guerrilla in guerrilla warfare fashion, and they, you know, had strong sort of grassroots uh, ties and so on. So you have um, the communists coming out of that uh, anti-fascist war with the knowledge that they stood on one side of the victorious uh, powers of uh, against fascism, and that was the socialist side. Um, meanwhile, the, the, the Guomindang, the, the nationalists, uh, came out of the, uh, war with Japan in a very, um, on paper in a very strengthened state, but in social terms and political and economic terms in a very weakened state. And they weren't able to, uh, turn their victory into a convincing, uh, uh, argument for them remaining. Uh, in power in China. And as we know, they lost the civil war. So by the time the communists come to state power, have successfully seized state power in 1949, they're absolutely clear about where in the global, you know, uh, uh, hierarchy or where in the global system they fit. Now, China originally, Mao Zedong and his, his, his uh, government originally did not want to split from the United States, absolutely. They uh, repeatedly tried to um, reach out to the United States and say, we were all victors on the right, on, on the correct side of history. Let's uh, unify as victors. But now the, uh, China is a sovereign nation and should be uh, treated as an equal partner. That didn't go over very well. And the United States was, and, and the Soviet Union were then, by, by then, long, you know, rushing headlong into what we call the Cold War, um, which I would just note was never very cold in Asia. There was always a hot war in Asia from 1950, the Korean War, the Vietnamese War, and so on and so forth. We, it was always a hot war. There was never cold in, in Asia. Nevertheless, what we call the Cold War, China was very clear that it was on the socialist side. Now, the Cold War appears as a often appears as a rivalry between two states, between the United States and the Soviet Union. But it was also, of course, a very um, uh, profound 
uh, uh, competition over the shape of uh, economic and political arrangements in the post-war world and onwards. And so whether those those arrangements were going to be more nominally socialist and we can talk about what that meant or whether they were going to be uh, um, uh, capitalist and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and ruled by uh, accumulation profit and, and so on. So the Chinese were not unclear about this. They were absolutely clear when their negotiations with the United States uh, went nowhere and the United States instead slapped an embargo on China, then they were forced to lean, as it were, lean to one side and lean to the Soviet side and strike deals with uh, the Soviet Union. And so through these early, this early period, China was very clear that in the large scale of the global um, split, they were on the socialist side. There was, of course, another split that was also quite, quite important, obviously, in the post-war period, and that was the colonial uh, countries versus the colonial powers, the metropoles. And China always placed itself uh, in relation to the uh, colonized peoples uh, racially, ethnically, politically, economically, and, uh, and, and ideologically. And so China also elaborated through the early years of the 1950s what we have come to call a third worldist, or in even newer terms, a south-south sort of um, uh, sensibility and uh, commitment, which uh, starts to get really elaborated in the late 1950s and, and into the 1960s. So alongside the socialist capitalist split, you also have the uh, colonized uh, or formerly colonized uh, or, or anti-colonial revolutionary wars that, get, that are being fought in Africa and parts of Asia and so on uh, versus the uh, colonial powers. So you have uh, those two and those two global uh, uh, systems, of course, are not unconnected. They're obviously quite connected, but China uh, pursues those two kinds of, uh, of, of global placings or global establishments or global elaborations differently. I mean, they're, they, they, they pertain to different diplomatic, ideological, cultural, and other modes. So, so when you mention um, just now when we discussed going back to the Republican Revolution, um, this revolution kind of marking an anti anti imperialist, anti colonial motivation of social upheaval, it was very much um, only in 1949, post 1949, um, under Mao Zedong rule, that these um, these endeavors really became speech that, that that they were announced out loud just now as you mentioned the kind of colonial um, effort or, or kind of um, of recognizing where China stands in the world and who the who their brothers and sisters are um, would you say that there was a kind of a constant perhaps <laughs> returning to the to the word deepening of um, where China stands on the global um, global stage and and thereby um, or, or just kind of responding to to, to kind of larger historical 
um, efforts at the time. Yeah, I mean, China, there had been ever since the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, a, um, a sort of articulation of China's sympathies with episodic contingents or sympathies with uh, third world, what we call third world peoples or uh, what were called in, in um, Sun Zhongshan's time in the 1920s, uh, oppressed pe- peoples, uh, oppressed peoples of the world, but yeah, poor uh, But um, the, the, this becomes a principle of governance. Okay. Uh, in, in the post 49 period, and it becomes a principle of governance in the following way. It, uh, China has to argue, um, and, chi- and uh, part of the Maoist um, uh, ideological uh, legacy is that um, the, histor- the historicist march of time that brings one from primitive communism through feudalism, uh, through slavery, through feudalism, to to capitalism, to socialism, that this historicist march, which is the the Stalinist, vulgar Marxist march of time, uh, doesn't work for China because China was never fully capitalist because it was colonized and imperialized, not fully colonized and not fully imperialized. And that's what the semi-colonial, semi-feudal sort of uh, designation was, is, is, is um, designed to express. But what China had to argue and did successfully argue was that it, was a mo- it had become a model for the colonial world of how to, in fact, move directly from colonization into socialism without having had to go through the whole period of capitalism, that a colonized country's period of capitalism corresponded in historicist terms to its colonial moment. And therefore, you could, because of its global colonial moment, you could leap from from a relatively backward situation into socialism, not because you had you know, uh, individual abundance because you didn't have individual abundance, but because you had revolutionary will and uh, the revolutionary sovereignty of, of, of mass mobilization and mass movements. And so the way in which China argued, and this was part of uh, Mao's elaboration of the uh, concept of new democracy, and um, other uh, theoretical and ideological uh, texts that were elaborated in the wake of that uh, particular text. Uh, And through the 50s and 60s, China more and more set itself up as a leader of the formerly colonized or newly decolonized uh, third world. as a revolution, as a as an example of the possibility for the success of a socialist revolution, rather than merely a nationalist one. So, whereas so many of the colonized countries had nationalist revolutions, anti-colonial nationalist revolutions, China's point was they could be nationalist and socialist at the same time. And the socialist component was. Uh, absolutely key to uh, retaining the kind of sovereignty that was necessary for them to be able to choose their own way. 
So that that's 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 the um, the the importance of having mass mobilization of it not being merely a nationalist bourgeoisie or not merely being an elite class that elaborates a uh, an anti-colonial vision for the seizure of state power from colonial officials, but that these movements had to be deeply rooted in the masses in the people in the in and had to be mass party led by mass parties for the masses this was a contribution that the chinese made at that time to uh the global theory of anti-colonialism and anti so so when you say the movements had to be in the people that they had to they had to narrate this notion of of history or or of revolution Yes, correct. That they had to narrate, they had to re-narrate their own histories as a history of the possibility for mass mobilization rather than as the history of eternal victimization by a colonial power. And so by rediscovering the possibilities of a mass, of course, uh, many African countries, in addition to China, obviously, uh, uh, had to uh, discover a past that may or may not have really existed in the past, but nevertheless had to uh, review their histories as histories of mass of of the potential for mass mobilization. Um, and uh, this was in China, of course. This was fantastically revolutionary and transformative um, and uh, sort of uh, subtends the whole of the 1949 to 1979 period is to re-narrate China's past as a past not of uh, successive dynasties, emperors, you know, that eunuchs, you know, foibles, you know, corruptions, this, that, and the next, but of the masses toiling to free themselves from domination, that's a powerful re-narration. And it's not wrong. It's just, you know, it, it, it's, it's just, you know, different from the uh, dynastic histories that had been written and the kinds of histories that had been written before. And so China also then uh, encouraged, one could say, uh, many revolutionary uh, uh, movements around the world to discover for themselves their own uh, mass uh, mobilized pasts. Yeah, and I think that that leads really nicely to my next question. If if we could delve a bit more into this notion of of re- revising history and. Um, we discussed already, um, kind of. You mentioned earlier the 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 this um, this work itself, obviously being a work about temporality and and um, kind of how the present, past, and future are revised and told through history. Um, and I and um, I wanted to delve a bit more into into this context within the um, within the historical moment of the or or kind of experience of the Cultural Revolution. So in chapter six, um, you move to, to the Cultural Revolution. 
um, era. And um, you really, I think, especially in this chapter, you draw on um, the other objective um, in, in your book, China's Revolutions in the Modern World, which is not just to place modern revolutions on the global stage. Your second objective is also to explore the problem of narration. So you ask, quote, which facts do we use to tell our story? How is the story organized? And whose voice is history told? And these are some of the questions you ask the reader in efforts to deconstruct how revolutions in what we know today as China have continuously been rewritten and reworked in light of how the present and future are envisioned. And we've already you've already given um, really excellent um, information, detailed information about how this was already an ongoing endeavor um, across these revolutionary moments. Um, but I was wondering, as a historian, historian, can you tell us more about what what temporality, what these narratives um, mean, or the problem of narration? Um, what does that mean when writing about China's immediate past, particularly focusing on the Cultural Revolution? Well, if we, yeah, that's uh, you know a, a really um, good question, and it's a question that I attempt to deal with at many levels and throughout the book. Um, and so I will uh, also just say I'm not I don't love the idea of revising the past. I do like the idea of rereading and re-narrating the past because um, a, a, a historical revision uh, tends to take on a weird connotation these days. So I'm, I'm, I sort of stay away from that particular um, problem. But that's neither here nor there. The. Um, problem of, I mean, all histories have to be narrated. So as soon as you understand that histories are, whether they're analyses, whether they're narrative histories of, you know, who, uh, you know, uh, whether they're great person histories, whether they're so any kind of history has to engage any kind of narrative. And I have uh, uh, some kind of narrative. And I have to thank my three teachers whom I dedicate this book to, uh, Reef Deerlick, Marilyn Young, and Harry Hurtunian, for reminding me of that consistently, because I always said, I don't write narrative. And they said, of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, yeah. you just have to recognize it. Yeah. And you have to embrace narrative, or even if you do not believe that narrative itself is self-explanatory. And so I remember my advisor, Arif, telling me that, my very good uh, friend, uh, Marilyn Young, telling me that, and uh, my other very good friend and advisor and uh, mentor, Harry Haratunian, telling me that now repeatedly over the past 30-odd years. So I have always, and because also I come from a literary background, um, I studied Russian literature when I was in college and my father was a, a literature uh, a professor and so on. So I've always been very, very interested in uh, texts and narratives and literary uh, constructions and so on. And so it becomes quite clear that we have to embrace the fact that we are narrators and that what we narrate can't be everything since that's impossible. And so that we have a pre-selected, we have to select how and what we're going to narrate. And that any selection has to be 
plausibly related to an explanatory mode to something that we that to 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 we have to be able to explain something through our narratives so it can't be just arbitrary because if it's arbitrary then it's fiction if it's historical it has to have an explanatory uh, power uh, and it has to actually take up a question and so the question in the whole book is why has China in the 19th and 20th centuries been marked so repeatedly by revolutionary movements? Okay, so that's like the big obvious question. Now, how to explain that? You could say, oh, well, you know, so-and-so was born and was revolutionary, and then the next person was born and was revolutionary. Or you can understand it more as a as a deep structure of the, that this global moment, because it's not only China that's revolutionary in the 19th and 20th centuries, it's the whole world is revolutionary in the 19th and 20th centuries. And so China is revolutionary in its way, but it's not exclusion, exclusionarily revolutionary. In the Cultural Revolution, for example, then you get the explicit political posing of the question how do we narrate a past, the China's past, in the idiom of class struggle that is the revolutionary narrative mode of the 1960s? And so how, I mean, this can be seen as a false question on one level, because why should you narrate all of China's past in the idiom of the 1960s? That could be one dismissive version of the Cultural Revolution, but a more uh, sympathetic, not sympathetic to the violence of the Cultural Revolution, but sympathetic to an analytical understanding of the Cultural Revolution can accept that asking that question, asking how the past gets narrated uh, how the problem of the past becoming narrated in the present is part of the revolutionary problem of today and imagining of the future. And so this gets posed absolutely explicitly. It is the jumping off point of the cultural revolution. And it becomes, uh, it becomes a problem of bureaucracy, do not because bureaucracy has existed since time immemorial, and therefore China is a bureaucratic country. Uh, that that's not Marxist or 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 historical materialist. It's about how do we think bureaucracy in relation to our socialist present. And as we know, the Cultural Revolution was launched in order to, um, at first at least, to, um, to, to, to uh, curtail the domination of the Communist Party over society and the privilege of the party members and party bureaucrats in relation to other uh, social, social uh, uh, powers and so on. And so the problem of, let's say, the Ming Dynasty bureaucracy or the Han Dynasty bureaucracy or and so on becomes an explicit present a question, not only of the past, but then of that present of the 1960s. And it's in that idiom that the past 
which otherwise doesn't speak to this present. How do we get the Ming dynasty to speak to our socialist present of the 1960s? It can't unless we do an analytical uh, uh, turn on it. And that's what they tried to do. It becomes, uh, it, 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 and, and, and that becomes the question of the, of the Cultural Revolution, initially. Hmm. Was it um, to kind of make it make everyday life a continuous revolutionary endeavor? Is that is that correct? As as rather than a kind of I think you you specifically use the word rather than a routine a routinized bureaucratic slog. Yes, exactly. I mean, what you want to do, what they that what they've decided, what what you know Mao and the powers, uh, the, the, what how they how they initiate the Cultural Revolution from the top is to is to uh, revolutionize the everyday life and to make people to to have people connect their everyday lives to the revolutionary transformation of the country so that it's no longer merely numbers bureaucratic chess games you know moving moving commodities around in in bureaucratic ways but people uh, becoming uh, uh, elementally involved in the in the transformation of their own of their own lives, and this, um, which is why then the sort of uh, past solutions to the problems of bureaucracy of corrupt officials, for example, which is the state comes down, uh, disciplines, and then presumably the question is over, is 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 solved. That's not sufficient because the question is not solved in the cultural revolutionary idiom. The question is merely deferred and postponed. And so the point of the cultural revolution was to um, try to root that out in a sort of more fundamental, profound and transformative fashion. It didn't work, as we know. It was spectacularly unsuccessful um, in its own terms. But, um, yeah, that was uh, uh, to, to read with the cultural revolution rather than against it. That's, that's, uh, that's how, how I understand it. And for that, then, the facts of history and how to re-narrate the past in the present in order to imagine a different future are absolutely fundamental. Yeah, absolutely. And this, um, this draws me to, to the question of, um, to my question that, that I was thinking about um, in the final chapter, um, which is, of course, the the final revolution that we know of to this day, um, the events leading up to 1989 and the aftermath of what happened um, in the Tiananmen Square protests and, of course, um, across mainland China. And um, in your in your book, in chapter um, seven, you write, quote, as an ideological promise, the socialist legacy is gone. As a structural matter, certain vestiges remain to be reworked by the capitalist transformation of the Chinese economy. Of course, um, this is in the aftermath of, of, of what happened in 1989. And um, just now, as you were talking, um, I was thinking about, you know, especially the Cultural Revolution being this um kind of hyper revolutionary time in history and then um what we know of in in more recent years and especially i think you specifically mention in your book um today's chinese society is a profoundly unrevolutionary society um 
So what does this mean in the context of um, what we know post-1989, um, but even just kind of in more recent years under you know, China under Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping rule? Um, how do you envision both revolution, um, but, but Chinese-ness um, under, under these kind of numerous historical revolutionary moments? Um, how, do you, how do you kind of, well, I guess my question is, um, what does it mean to be profoundly unrevolutionary? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think that uh, the the socialist element of China is uh, the revolutionary socialist element of China contesting the world order. Um, the capitalist world order is no longer. China now has become one of the major uh, cheerleaders for proponents of and architects of the global capitalist system. Uh, Even as, I mean, this is a facile sort of, uh, it's not even, doesn't qualify as an insight. Many people have said it, but, you know, as uh, the the U.S. uh, uh, administration today has uh, retreated from a certain form of globalization, China has um, argued more and more clearly for a, uh, a, a deepening of global uh, relations uh, and so on. So that, um, but these are not socialists. These are not. These are uh, uh, accumulative. They are extractive. They are exploitative, and therefore they are capitalist. Um, in 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 uh, in in practically in all, all ways, uh, and whether it's state capitalist or private capitalist doesn't, it doesn't alter the facts. So um, China contests the global order now only in terms of who has in the past been understood to be the global hegemon politically, and that's the United States uh, uh, to a great extent. Um, and uh, does not contest the global order uh, in terms of political economy uh, other than to assert its own political economic power in, all, in as many spheres as it can and, uh, and can push into. And so um, China now is a hugely nationalist um, it's a state that uh, that that promotes an a exclusionary ethno nationalism that couldn't be more different than the uh, socialist internationalism of the Mao era. Under socialist internationalism, you mere, you have to be a Marxist, but then you're in. It doesn't matter, you know. You have to be a Marxist and a revolutionary, but then you're in. It doesn't matter what your skin color who you are, where you're from, what sex you are, and so on. As long as you you have a certain kind of um, uh, socialist internationalist outlook, you can be included. In China's contemporary nationalism, uh, and ever more so, there's an extraordinary ethno-exclusionism that is not only exclusionary of outright foreigners, but is, of course, exclusionary of Uyghurs uh, who are being incarcerated at at ever uh, uh, increasing rates, 
of Tibetans, of other kinds of non-Han minorities, uh, as they're called, and so on. And so that you have now an exclusionary nationalism that now re-narrates Chineseness as a fusion of and as a as a wished for fusion of ethnicities rather than as a coalition of different ethnicities. And so you have a fundamental re-narration of what China as an ethno-nation is, as opposed to China as a political as a as a global political um, uh, uh, competitor to ethno-nationalisms globally. So now I'm thinking just in, in um, earlier in the discussion, um, you mentioned, um, or, or I used the word continuation, I think, or you pointed out that I was referring to this kind of what I, what I interpreted to be um, the chapters, or at least the way that you, you um, write about the revolutions, because you have this kind of um, the kind of chapter outline and then the interlude. So it kind of, as a reader, um, there's, a, there's a kind of continuation structure there um and then um would you describe now um chinese society as as an unrevolutionary one um that there's been a fundamental rupture or break this is probably a bigger question that you need to <laughs> um but it's just something that i was thinking just now as you were talking and then i was also thinking um is there has there been a redefinition of, of revolution? Um, one of my questions I wanted to pose was, what does revolution need, mean in um, in the Chinese context itself? So, um, is is there what does revolution mean in the Chinese historical context? And of course, this is also a bigger question that that you probably are able to answer in this podcast alone because it refers to all these many themes that you write about in your book that that they are global and they're uh, modern not merely in a chronological but in the context but in the experience of time but also um to answer such a question you need to refer to the problem of narration um but this is something that i'm still thinking about as as we've discussed um what does revolution mean in the context of china or how would you describe revolution to mean today in china yeah, I mean, you've obviously picked up on the uh, on 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 you know something that I don't articulate absolutely clearly in the book because I hadn't thought about it uh, quite so clearly as you're now posing it to me. But that um, if we think of today as ruptural, um, which I think there, you know, I think ideologically. It's both a rupture from a previous, um, from socialism, absolutely. I think um, the, uh, uh, I think it's Daijihua, who's a uh, theorist, a fe feminist film theorist, puts it, uh, and I think I, I quote her in my, in my book, that the, that the, uh, the aftermath of 1989 really purged socialism's spiritual legacy. Uh, and so there is no longer, so that's a very ruptural thing. And that's been coming on since 1992. And that's not attributable only to Xi Jinping, but Xi Jinping has concretized that in a certain set of, uh, of, 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 of ways. But by the same token, what is revolution? Then um, if revolution isn't absolutely ruptural, if it's always both ruptural and continuation, then um, can't don't we argue that for today? And of course we have to. But 
the revolutions um, have a bad rap in China today. Uh, a lot of a lot of historians uh, no longer wish to think about China's modern history as a revolutionary history. Um, they want to think about China as a history of bureaucratic administrations that then look like they continue from the Han dynasty for 2000 years all the way to the present. Um, so that the, the idea of a ruptural history has a really, um, is, is, has really been discarded uh, uh, among many, many historians today in China and outside of China, which was another reason I really wanted to write this book is to assert that revolutions are important and that we have to write about them. But what is revolution? I mean, revolution now in China is really the mechanism through which the Communist Party came to power. And it is the legitimation of the continuing power of the Communist Party. It's not, there is very little in contemporary Chinese uh, uh, party narrative about the importance of mass mobilizations, of political campaigns, political movements, of, um, uh, of socialism, and so on, other than of the state-mandated sort. So what is revolution? It's now been demoted to a series of uh, events that legitimize the present rather than forcing us to contest and question the present. And if we think of revolutions historically as having forced us to confront the past uh, and in a transformed present, right now what revolutions do is merely confirm that the contemporary moment is correct rather than uh, that the contemporary moment needs to be um, needs to be uh, continually rethought. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's um, I think, a really fantastic way of summing up um, what, what, you've, what you describe throughout your book and, and um, obviously what's, what is happening, you know, just considering um, um, you, 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 your final interlude in your book is, um, is in relation to... Um, in in relation to well, you title it Xinjiang, um, sorry Xinjiang two thousand nine, um, but of course, um, if you you could have another interlude, um, you know, related um, only on Hong Kong and, and so forth. So, um, I think I think this is a really nice way of summing your 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 answer just now is a nice way of summing up um, what is happening, and and it will only be we can only we can only see and and um see what will unfold in terms of the revolutionary um attempts that the different populations have have um put forth in in more recent years um, yeah i mean i i i was finishing writing my conclusion just as the hong kong uh yeah. events were heating up and so i have they allowed me to add a a, a paragraph because i was already in in copy editing and the book yeah. was already in production. And so I added a paragraph about Hong Kong, which was, uh, I mean, it looks sort of throwaway in the conclusion, but I wanted to say something, but I didn't, they wouldn't, I couldn't get them to, I mean, I would have had to, they would have had to reset, retypeset the whole book. And obviously that wasn't going to happen. So I, I, I shoved a paragraph in there at the very end about Hong Kong. 
So, um, yeah, I mean, there's always limitations to, to what you can include um, in, in, in a piece of writing, in, in a monograph. So where would it have ended, obviously, um, especially considering ex- um, increasingly tense political climate and that we live in now. And of course, um, the, the pandemic and everything there, that you would have had a continuous um, <laughs> kind of extension of that conclusion or another interlude um, yes of course i mean it can it, history doesn't stop it just keeps going but exactly exactly <laughs> I had to, yeah. I had to, yes i had to stop somewhere yeah um which leads me to my final question um what are you working on nowadays um what is it that are you, have you picked up a new project have you returned to something you were working on before china's revolutions in the modern world um are you taking some time away from writing and from research to to kind of um find new inspirations um yeah tell us rebecca what you're what you're doing these days um well uh, th- 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 this i can answer on several fronts uh in the most immediate uh, uh, recent days because of the pandemic and being at home and being sort of, um, uh, uh, consumed with trying to a stay alive, b not get anybody else sick and, uh, c uh, try to, uh, normalize life in these conditions. I, I have to say, I've not been particularly involved. I haven't been writing a lot. What I have been doing is um, a lot of organizing uh, of different kinds of um, collective uh, events and collective uh, 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 initiatives. Uh, I am part of a newly formed uh, organization called Critical China Scholars, and we've launched several webinars now. Uh, that are uh, that are attempts to um, provide grounded leftist analysis of uh, the U.S., China, and China and the world sort of uh, um, issues. Uh, so that's with uh, several um, colleagues from the United States, Australia, Hong Kong, uh, and uh, and so on. I've been involved in the launch of a uh, Gramscian um, uh, notebooks, a a journal called Notebooks with uh, colleagues in Italy and uh, the UK. And I have been involved in launching the uh, website for the Positions Collective, and Positions is a a well-known journal. Uh, of uh, culture critique, East Asia culture critique. Uh, and uh, we now have a large website that is um, split into three different um, uh, categories. One is Praxis, which is contemporary politics. One is called Icon, which is visual, uh, is the, is the uh, integration of visual and, narr- and textual uh, narrative um, uh, things. And then one is called Epistemi, which is a more, um, not quite an academic, but not quite a journalistic sort of thematic, uh, uh, compilation. And so the, uh, website has been taking, you know, some amount of time, the, uh, collective, the China, uh, the critical China scholars has been taking some amount of time and so on. So I've been doing, I've I, in my sort of splendid isolation of uh, home seclusion because of the pandemic, 
I've been uh, it, doing more and more collective work, and that's been good. That's that's I think that's going to actually that actually has durable uh, results. My own writing, I have gone back to um, a project that I had been working on um, and that I took a little break from, which was, um, or rather a large break from, but I, I, it's a project on uh, economic philosophy in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s in China. And it follows on my more recent book from 2017 called Magic of Concepts. And so it's uh, tracks one particular economic philosopher and his engagement in three moments of debate over um, over various political economic issues in China in the context of uh, the the global depression in 19 uh, the global financial crisis in 1930s global war in the 1940s and the transition to socialism in the 1950s so that's a more academic piece and that's um, that's coming along not not smoothly but it's coming well well it sounds like you've really been keeping yourself busy and at the same time doing things that sound um like they're you know so such rich experiences and as you mentioned working collectively with people i think especially in this in the times that we're living in now is just really important so um sounds like you're doing really fantastic work and um you're extremely busy so thank you so much for <laughs> thank you so much for taking um taking um time aside to talk to talk to me about um your your recent book i genuinely really enjoyed reading it um i would highly recommend it to anybody as i mentioned in the introduction for you know even just undergraduate level students um who are interested in china but um obviously just for anybody academic or, or non-academic um, audiences, it's um, it's a short read, but um, s- such such rich, um, detailed accounts of um, fascinating moments in history, which, um, as this discussion hopefully spells out, or especially or particularly Chinese in nature and and global. So it's um, an important historical um, story to to to. Um, to read or narratives <laughs> to, um, to 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 read and to to learn about, um, and this conversation has taught me even more about um, these these um, this moment, or, or you know, the has taught me more about um, your own interests and 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 specifically what it means to be a historian, but also obviously um, the content of your of your book and these historical revolutions. So um, I want to thank you so much, Rebecca, for for being part of the show and for putting time aside to to talk to us. I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you very much, Suvi, for inviting me for your really um, smart and probing questions that made me think deeply and uh, perhaps even left me a little bit uh, uh, stammering at times because I was trying to think about what to say. But um it's been a real pleasure, and it's always fun to uh, revisit and to visit to revisit my work with somebody who's reading it for the first time. So, um, thank you very much for the opportunity.